Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Bernice Harrison, standing in for your usual host, Kathy Sheridan. Later, I'll be talking to British journalist Emma Brocks about her book, An Excellent Choice, which details her decision to take on an untraditional route to pregnancy, age 37, when she was single and in the early stages of a same-sex relationship. But first, Irish Times writer Joan Scales wrote recently about her decision to go on Tinder. That's a dating app, for those of you who don't know. That was a few years after she became a widow. And we invited her into the Women's Podcast Studio to talk to us about her experience of swiping right or left. I don't even know. So she's going to explain it all when she comes in. Also in studio to talk about Tinder and dating is Irish Times agony aunt, Ro McDermott. She frequently advises her readers to go on Tinder. So we want to know why. What's in it for them? Ro and Joan, you're very welcome to the podcast. So, Joan, I have to start with you. You're on Tinder. I am. And you wrote about it. Now, I've just been saying to Ro just before you came in the studio that I just think it's so fantastically brave. Now, because Ro is, uh, writes about a sex therapist, she writes about sexual questions and she she, she just, nothing phases. too Not- brave for too long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nothing phases Ro. But I was there going, did you feel brave writing about that? I did. Well, what happened was... Um, you know, I, I'm widowed for, for a number of years. And, and you're a woman in your 50s. And yes, I'm a woman in my 50s. And I was very lonely. I was fed up kind of eating dinner on my own and not having someone to talk to, you know, about movies or, or, or your day or, or people ringing you. You know, I missed the phone calls like my partner used to ring me all the time. And so I missed all that. And my kids, my daughter is on Tinder and she said, Mom, give it a go. There's loads of older people on it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it was only for youngsters, you know. Mm. So uh, so I did. I signed up and very quickly I got uh, responses mm. and um, some disappointing, I must say, because I have stood up four times in a row. <laughs> and did you actually go out to the place? I did, was, yeah. Aw. Well, I picked Costa Coffee in uh, Dame Street as, okay. as a place to meet four times. The fifth time, uh, a lovely man turned up. I must say, really lovely, and I'm still seeing him now. He's Fantastic. Beautiful looking. The best right. looking man I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> now, so wait a minute. Now, what did you put in your bio? Because that's the key thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, okay. it is. Well, mm-hmm. I put a nice picture in, and uh, and I just explained who I was mm-hmm. and what I was looking for, and that I wasn't looking for uh, a friend with benefits. <laughs> I was looking for someone to go for a walk hang or out with. have dinner, hang out with, and if sex was... An option, then yes, I'd mm. be open to that too. Mm. So, um, so I'm seeing this guy since, and I'm delighted because he's lovely. And every morning he has sent me a message, you know, saying "Good morning, princess," and mm. oh, it's so nice, you know, it's lovely. And what made you choose him just from his bio? What made yeah, you from his bio? Because he sounded really nice. He sounded like a nice, kind person. I mean, he's divorced. He's three children. 
um, which I felt was a plus as well, mm. because you're better off to have a man who's had children. They're, they're really? Much, much more understanding. Okay. Yeah, much more understanding. Okay. Yes, yeah, so his, his bio appealed to me in his photograph, of course, as I said, he's, he's really good looking. And, and what was the reaction of your kids then? You oh, they're delighted. Who cares really what they're, they think ultimately, Oh, yeah, actually, no, they're delighted. They're delighted. And they're always saying, when I'm saying I've nothing to do, they're saying, but you go on Tinder. <laughs> go on Tinder and find someone. So now, so you haven't gone back after you've met this great guy. Oh, yeah, have... no. Oh, no, I have a look every day. Oh, do... <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, now. Do... I haven't shut the door. <laughs> so, Ro, is this, does this sound like a common experience? Does Joan's experience sound common from your post bag? Do you think this is reflective of what's going on? Yeah, so I think there's two things here. Like, I think absolutely people meet and have relationships with people that they met on online dating. Like, I've had long-term relationships with people I've met on OkCupid and have dated people that I've met on Tinder. Um but I think just in terms of the narrative framing, what we're looking at is a success story, right? You mm. wanted a relationship. You wanted someone to spend quality time with um, and you found that. But I think it's important to remember like success in terms of your dating life or your sex life looks different for different people. So I'm utterly delighted that you yeah. found what you were looking for. I'm also delighted for people who want to have like a really fun one night stand or want to have a friends yeah. with benefits situation and find that with someone who is mutually empowering and healthy and nice and but kind. I, I think, well, yeah. What's interesting about that, though, is the, the I don't know, did you read that research into, into Tinder and the difference between male and female expectations on Tinder? And this research threw up that 11% of women go on Tinder with the prime motivation for having sex, meeting somebody for sex. But 30% of men do that. So already, that's a huge disconnect. That's that's that like that's a recipe for misery for you know all those women who think that the men are on twin Tinder for for the same purposes they are and they're not. Well, see, I don't know if women are naive thinking that every man every man online is looking for a relationship. So I don't know if those numbers illustrate that necessarily. Um, but I do think I completely understand why women would be more wary using online dating or apps as a way to seek out casual sex because you're not interacting with someone in person. And if you're purely looking for casual sex mm. and all power to you, no judgment, um, if you are looking for that, it's very important to get to know someone physically so you can see how they react to you, see how they can respect per- personal and physical boundaries you see how they interact with you as a as a person and your bodily integrity and I think that's a very important thing to judge in person and for women who grew up in rape culture and have been afraid of men who have experienced men crossing boundaries before I think trying to judge whether or not they're going to have casual sex with someone off a dating app of course they're more wary so Mm. I completely understand that I don't think it necessarily shows that all men are looking for casual Mm, sex and women aren't. I did. Uh, I did draw up seven rules for Tinder dating. Okay, now what uh, are your seven uh, rules? Uh, they're here, okay. and one of them is that uh, no sex until after the third date. Now, is this 1952? Now, where I disagree with this. I know. Why did you? Wh- wh- where are you with that now? With the whole thing of what Rose after saying about getting to know someone okay. to see if they're the type of person you'd like, if their uh, framework is similar to yours, um, so that's why I had that in there because. Uh, I, I myself wouldn't feel comfortable until at mm. least the third date no. uh, that I'd had a good few conversations. So, and, what do you, what, where are you with that? So, I think, I think 
you can judge I think it is important for people to judge physically and in person how a person interacts with them absolutely I think imposing a three date rule on people first of all I think it's really imposing on women because men will never be judged oh, for having sex wait, with somebody never wait three dates <laughs> but even if they do they will never be judged for their choice either way so if no. a man has sex on a first date and even if it goes wrong or he doesn't get on with the girl a man is never going to be judged whereas if a woman has sex on a first yeah. date and then the man never calls her again it'll be like well you slept with him too quickly so I think so I think imposing these rules is actually imposing them on women and I also think it can be kind of arbitrary I've had dates that have been 45 minutes because I've cut them short because I know they're not going anywhere I've had dates that have literally been 8 hours and I've had like you know dates of a similar length where a person is a really incredible communicator and we have incredible like connection and banter we get to know each other very quickly and then I've dealt with people like it's like getting blood out of a stone Mm. trying to get any information out of them so I think again the 3 date rule it's just putting an arbitrary limit and it's not taking people's intuition or the communication styles into mm. account and again I just feel those judgments always come back mm. and land on women so I think it's more what you do with your time rather than the amount of time or the quantity of yeah. dates. So in your, your post bag for your your um, your advice column, your weekly advice column in the Irish Times magazine um, I mean I'm sure you get that age old question from women uh, saying you know how, where do I meet, Where where am I going to meet somebody? Yeah, I think the problem, a recurring problem that's coming up now is, first of all, people feel hard done by and feel like people really aren't putting in effort into online dating. I think that is a real problem. I think one of the things I've discussed in one of my previous columns is this idea of the paradox of choice in that, which is kind of an economic theory. And it says that if consumers have too many options, they get overwhelmed mm-hmm. and they lose sight of their own priorities. They well, just get distracted. Tinder, surely, yeah. with all this choice. Absolutely. Okay. because And I think it's, if you get four messages from people like in a day on Tinder you could easily ignore all of them because you're saying well I can get four today like maybe tomorrow I'll get five from better (laughs) has that been your experience Joan? Yeah you do um, well the whole way it works is you like or or you don't like people and they'll respond to you then and uh, oh yeah you could have four four messages a day easily Now do you not think that's you know the the, the big the big uh, um Thing against Tinder is that it's superficial. You're just judge. You're looking at your phone, the tiny little screen. Oh, it's a totally, face comes totally up superficial. And you're judging on that. Yeah, and and tell you what's what I think is even funnier about Tinder. Uh, it's all based on photographs. Mm. Now you, know. you have some advice on photographs. I have you some say, advice on photographs. Uh, men, stop showing photographs of your grubby underpants. I can't believe that. <laughs> They show their their bikes, their motorbikes, <laughs> their their sailing, their uh, holding their, up dead fish. Holding really? up dead okay. fish. Like yeah, I can absolutely. provide for their you, woman. Their ex girlfriends. Ew. Hello. Or drugged really? tigers, yeah. like <laughs> photographs of them yeah. in Asia with a drugged, oh, unconscious, good. abused tiger. Okay. No, and I meant to be really, really impressed. The, like you caught pictures, it yourself. They, they just get XXX. Okay. I just delete them immediately because right. really, I don't care what your grubby underpants look like. <laughs> So what should then, Ro, what if you if you were advising somebody on how to devise the perfect yeah. bio for a dating site, not just yeah. Tinder, for any of them, there's loads of them. What, what would you say? What, where do you start? What do you say? Should you get your friend to do it? Should you get my pot? I think that I think focus grouping is always amazing. <laughs> okay, get all your mates around. I think okay. one of the main problems again, and this is a recurring problem that we get asked about, is that people literally do not fill out their profiles or they send messages just saying hi. They don't read other people's profiles, they don't respond to what's in the profiles. And there's been research on this that if you look at similar demographics of people you're dating, so you take like same age, background, um, like general profession, um, and you look at people who are still single and people who are 
who have found long-term relationships online, the difference is the length of their profile and the length of the messages that they're sending. It should be long. And unequivocally across the board, people who sent longer messages, wrote longer profiles, found matches. Because what you're doing is you're showing who you are, you're showing your interests, and you're also showing to prospective partners where they might fit in your life. So if you have a profile that says nothing but like food, films, friends, <laughs> first of all, it's you also like breathing and standing. <laughs> Could you get any more generic? Yeah. yeah. But you're not telling anybody what their so role say, would look I, like in I your like life. I like going out for a meal once a week instead of food. No, I love reading say? science fiction. Okay. I love spending time with my friends playing video games, but together. So there's a sense of there is a life here that I can fit into where we can share things yeah. together. And it's not just, I like going to the gym and sleeping in. These are things you do on your own. They're not sociable. <laughs> right. Um, so I think filling out, but I think the reason people don't fill out their profiles and the reason people don't send messages is that we are terrified of rejection and we're terrified of admitting that we want something where even if it is just sex, we're terrified of saying there's something lacking in my life. There's a gap. I want to fill it. I want to connect with mm. someone, no matter what that connection is. And And so to put yourself out there to actually put effort into your profile means acknowledging that desire and means acknowledging that vulnerability and people are just loath to do it. So I think it's about saying if you're on an online dating site, everyone else is in the same boat. They're looking for something. But is that a hard leap, Joan, to get over here in Ireland? Because, you know, we are a tiny, tiny country at the small pool of people. You know, were you afraid that, you know, you'd, you'd put up your profile and then suddenly, yeah. you know, one yeah, of the men you sit upstairs thing. next to in the office is going yeah, to be on. Yeah, one, one of the things that uh, does cross my mind all the time when I look at a Tinder is, when am I going to see someone I know? Yeah, and have you? <laughs> uh, once oh. I've seen who, a guy who I know is married, oh. in fact, with lots okay. of children. Oh. Uh, so, um, right, that's but the, the other thing, The other thing about Tinder is... Um, Men generally are liars and cheats. Oh, OK. Say it, Joan. Say it, Joan. Yeah, liars and cheat. Okay. One guy contacted me. He was gorgeous looking. He was a fine thing. <laughs> I was very keen on him. And the first thing he said to me was, I don't want any complications. My life is complicated enough. I have a wife and children and a girlfriend. I Sounds suspect like you're introducing some of those complications yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and where do you uh, think you were going to I, fit into and this if, other scenario? If, if we're to get together, then uh, you'll have to find somewhere for us to have a love nest. And um, the uh, I don't want any any emotions or anything involved. I just want sex, and that's it. Wouldn't it be fascinating to know? Is it working for him? Our, you know, our well, he's still out there. He's oh, still on Tinder. It's a gem for somebody to But the, find. the other thing I think about Tinder is I think it's a fabulous tool to have. Okay. It really is. It's terrific to be able to meet people. And, um, and, and you do dictate your own rules of what you want, what you expect out of it. And so I think it really makes it so much easier to mm. get out of me. And nobody judges you because you're on Tinder. You know, I know lots of people who've met their long term partners and everything on Tinder. And there's no judgment. Whereas previously, if you'd said you'd Went be going. singles thing or something. Yeah, or you were on a dating site, a dating thing. Um, people would, would have their own opinions and wouldn't necessarily be nice opinions. So you, fi- you feel changed? Do you feel there's been I a... I feel, yeah, there's been a big change and it's it's really quite acceptable. And even at any age, it's acceptable. I mean, you see 
people on Tinder in their 70s and 80s and all. Mm. And I think fair play to fair them. Play. Now, I'm, play. we're going to end because you've got you've got other rules. Now, Roe disagrees with your, your three-date rule before sex. Yeah. Um, but other ones actually see... And be, uh, this is sort of a slight public service safety element to yes, this broadcast. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, and again, Roe, maybe we'll, we'll see do, how, how, how do these work with you. Yeah. Um, one of Joan's rules, number one, Joan's rule, for to never give all your details to a date. How are we with that? Oh, no. Give your PIN numbers. Give your credit cards. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah. Okay. I'd also be aware just I if you're linking, you can link in. There's an option to link in your Instagram. But often if you link in your Instagram, then they can see your account. So also be careful of what pro, what accounts you're linking in and what information you have on those, which I think a lot of people don't think about. So look at your privacy yeah. settings, yeah. basically, yeah. which is the basic rule of any online thing. Yeah. Okay. Two, never meet a secluded place how are we with that there's been three cases rape cases this year in the Irish courts and all women got into cars with men in secluded places well, well why why do you think that happened Rob? I mean we can't talk about the specific cases obviously yeah. but but these women presumably you know women are smart they're not going to do stupid why what is it because there's a false notion that you you know this person because you've been in online communication I what? actually I don't think it's a false notion that the women necessarily feel safe in those situations I think it's a lack of awareness and respect on the part of men mm-hmm. that women do need to take extra precautions so even for example as we were saying if people want to meet up for casual sex women should absolutely feel free going cool we're going to meet in a bar and we're going to have a drink and then we can go back to who's ever house or Mm. wherever we're going and men should implicitly understand that we live in a rape culture and that that is a necessary precaution for women to take Mm. and I think women do not feel comfortable asserting that boundary because men don't take it well and often men can get like aggressive or surly or sulk when you indicate look I have to make sure you're a safe person and so I think it does fall back on men to actually own that and go hi let's meet for like Yes, of course I will meet you you in a public place. Of course I want you to feel safe. Because casual sex is like any other interaction. It needs to respect people's humanity and respect people's boundaries. And I think people often dismiss that with casual sex and they absolutely shouldn't. Everyone should feel safe. You also need to make sure that you have, like you fancy them in person. Mm. I'm a big, I like, people's voices is a huge thing with attraction for me. So I need to meet them in person and listen to them or else I'll be like, no, I don't want to listen to you for 20 minutes. Sorry, I don't. (laughs) Number three. Tell someone where you're going and who you're meeting. Get as much detail as you can. I think that's very important. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if someone is genuine, they have no problem giving you, giving you all their details. Have you have you had an escape hatch phone call to your one of your girlfriends? Yeah, yeah. You we say have. if I will you phone me after I'll 15 phone minutes yeah, or I'll, yeah, absolutely. if I phone you and say put yeah, the milk line out. it up with your girlfriends okay. that um, okay. someone will ring you or and you'll give them all the details. Number four, always use a condom. Never have unprotected sex. Yeah, a lot of men try to persuade you to have unprotected sex. You know, they want to go bareback riding, but Jesus, never do it. Never do Because you don't know who else they're sleeping with and what bloody STIs they have. Yeah, I'm sorry. If they're pressuring women to do that, they probably do have something. Because they yeah, exactly. they've probably been successful at least once. And if they're that cavalier about their health, it means they're cavalier about your health. Yeah. Now, your final uh, cautionary note is do not send explicit photos of yourself, no matter how tempted. I know. Most men will ask you to send pictures of yourself, send pictures of your tits and your pussy and God knows what else. Yeah, the cheek of them. And they're very happy to send their penis to you. Ew. Ew, yeah. (laughs) Ew. Where, where are we with this now, Ro? You're, you're, you think? Yes. I'm so sad for oh. humanity right now. <laughs> um, 
No, I think I think men who ask or demand that before meeting you in person are absolutely terrible. I have no problem with people sending photos to people that they are in any form of like sexual yeah. or intimate relationship with. Mm. And I also think, again, we often judge women for sending explicit photos of themselves. And there's very little conversation about how men have normalized sharing those photos with their friends or showing them to other people, which is a sexual violation. Like it is a form of sexual abuse. Um, so I think we need to, again, stop shaming people for engaging in the act, but shame people for violating the trust and respect that comes with that act. So again, I do think there's a part like you should get to know somebody so that you know that that trust is shared between both of you. Um, but yeah, we need to start really judging the people who are violating these, you know, pretty basic rules of treating people with respect and humanity and not people who would trust others. Okay, well, look, thank you so much, Joan. Thank you for telling us a bit about your adventures in Tinderland. <laughs> and the best of luck. Misadventures. Yeah. <laughs> Misadventures, exactly. Thank you very much, Ro, yeah. for coming in. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me on. No that was Ro McDermott and Joan Scales speaking to me there about the wonderful world of Tinder and online dating. Now, when British journalist, memoirist, if you haven't read She Left Me the Gun, I urge you to, and New York transplant Emma Brox decided to become pregnant, she quickly realised that being single, 37, and in the early stages of a same-sex relationship, and incidentally she was going to be going alone while she was in a relationship, this was a solo effort, she was going to have to go the untraditional route about it. But from the moment she decided to stop futzing, as she calls it, have her eggs counted and get cracking through multiple trials of IUI, which is a fertility technique, which she was intrigued to learn can be purchased in bulk packages, to the births of her twins, Brox is never less than bluntly and bracingly honest about her extraordinary journey to motherhood. She joins me now on the line from New York. Emma, thank you for joining us in the Women's Podcast studio here. You're from you're calling in from New York on Skype, which is fantastic. But the wonders of technology, you're here. And we're going to talk to you about an excellent choice. Uh, the subtitle of your new book being Panic and Joy on My Solo Path to Motherhood. And can I just say... Congratulations first for not calling it a journey. It's a path. <laughs> so well you. done, because that would have tipped us all over the edge. But I absolutely adored this book. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I think um, the centre of this story, of course, is, fer- is fertility treatments. That is really the, the, the sort of the crux of the, the, the whole book, really. And books about fertility treatments, no more than, you know, one born every minute, they sort of they're for people who are going through that at the time I think in general this is not and I think it's not because you spend a lot of time thinking about motherhood what does motherhood mean what does it mean for you and what does it mean for society in general and you start particularly talking about you say that motherhood is a it's, it's a it's a red button issue mention motherhood and everybody has an opinion so what is that about um it's a, it's a good question. I, I think the political answer is that, um, and this can sometimes be hard to relate to one's own life and one's own circle, but I think there has to be something in the fact that at some level, women are still valued on the basis of their personal relationships, whether they're married, whether they have kids. Um, they kind of give us units of meaning that, mm. that, that men are not expected to be rated according to. And I think because of that, it makes all of the decisions we make around motherhood and relationships really fraught, because whether we know it or not, we're sort of all quite slyly in competition with us, with each <laughs> other. And, and you know, that I think that explains why 
women can police each other's behavior just as ferociously as men can police women's behavior, you know, that there's this sort of undercurrent of competition between us. And it makes what should be a, just a very straightforward personal decision into something much more fraught and much bigger and something that we're all quite sensitive to criticism over, I think. Mm. And you talk, you, you, you've a, a very, well, I also should say that the book is really funny, actually. I laugh so <laughs> many <laughs> times. Um, the, there's a tendency when you talk about the subject, it will get very po-faced. And I don't want any of our listeners to think that that is the case of this book. This book is hilarious in parts. But, you, you know, you're, you, in this part when you're talking about motherhood and how everybody has an opinion, you know, um, you say, you know, women who have only one child are selfish. Women who have a child alone are selfish. Women who don't have children are selfish. Women who have children not working and expecting the taxpayer to foot the bill, selfish. So there's a list. You go on and on and on about the various permutations about motherhood, which I think is so, you know, interesting. The fact that we all have an opinion. Right. And, and, and that we can't win. I mean, this is in some ways, this is the this is the um, escape clause for us. It's like literally whatever decision as a woman you make about having a kid, when you have it, who you have it with, where you have it, what your income is, whether you have help, whether you don't have help, uh, you're going to be judged by someone mm. um, for being wanting. So uh, there comes a point, And this is this is where I got to in my own head after about 18 months of like fretting and dithering over this whole thing where I just thought, I might as well just do what I want. Mm. <laughs> because whatever I do, I'm going to be damned by someone. And at this and point, you were releasing. And at this point, you were 38. You were 37. You were 37, 37 when you yeah. sort of thought, right, now I better do it now, you know? I fr- yeah, and I was deeply ashamed of that because that felt wrong as well. Like every, you know, every thought I had felt like a betrayal of someone. So it felt to me like a very unfeminist thing to suddenly freak out about having a baby at mm. 37. And also like a pitiful cliche straight from the pages of every women's magazine article I've ever read on the subject. You know, turn 37 and suddenly freak out about your ovaries. How completely <laughs> pathetic. Um, and yet that's what I found myself doing. Um, so that probably took six months of like working through. And then the whole business, the the parts of the book that are, are particularly funny, even though, you know, you do feel slightly guilty of laughing sometimes, I suppose because you're pointing out the absurdity of donor choice because you had to choose a donor. You were a single woman. You had to choose a donor. You needed sperm. Yeah, and no, the thing is, I found it funny at the time. I mean, for all that it was kind of stressful and weird, I was... The entire way through, I was aware that it was completely hilarious and absurd to be making what felt like this, you know, titanic decision based on what a guy's favorite film was <laughs> uh, and whether that could somehow be transmuted through his genes to a child that I might have who might have rubbish film taste 25 years from now. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it, I, I understood that I was making this decision on criteria that made absolutely no sense. Um, and that's because the kind of donor sperm industry um doesn't can't can't understand what it is it's selling you which is which is not 50% of your child's personality because i don't really think it that's how it works mm. <laughs> so um, yes, that was all deeply, deeply unnerving. And I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know how to make the decision. And you, 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 uh, you talk industry, you mentioned the word industry there. And that's an, also another feature of the book, of the fertility treatment. This was, you're a British woman, but you're living in New York. This is a business. This is a big business. And I got the sense from reading your experience, you know, because everything takes so long and you spend a lot of time waiting and all these tests and everything. But fundamentally, it's all about money. And Many of the choices that you made, you kind of had to make them on your own because the doctor would say, well, you know, what do you want to do? In in other words, how much can you afford to keep going and so on? Exactly. I mean, for for any European person living in the US, something like this, probably having any kind of engagement with the medical industry in the US is just unbelievably 
unnerving and freaky. Just from the get-go of having to choose a doctor, the very idea that you have a choice mm. of, of doctor is, is crazy to us and felt to me at the time like being asked to choose my airline pilot. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, you choose. I, I don't have the knowledge necessary to make a, a, a proper choice. Um, so then you're presented with a range of options. Um, you know, you can buy, when you have fertility treatment in the US, you can buy three for two, like a three for two package, <laughs> as if you're buying baked beans two for Costco. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and everything is skewed towards uh, keeping the costs down or, you know, making sure that your, your credit rating is adequate so that you can carry on buying this stuff. And all of, the medical stuff seems to come secondary to the commercial stuff because all, you know, all of these clinics are obviously in it for the money. Um, and so, and to that extent, I mean, that's basically why I had twins. Um, I would never have conceived twins in the UK because they would have been far more conservative in the amount of drugs that they gave me. Mm. But in the US, you know, they had an eye on, on the, on the price and they wanted to get me a result quickly so that I would give them a good rating on like medical <laughs> Yelp or whatever it was. So pre it, presumably that yeah. also, did that suit you? Were you shocked at the time or? Well, I mean, this is where I am deeply ambivalent and it's probably why people who've been through an experience are sometimes the absolute worst people to be consulted mm. <laughs> about you know official regulation of it but now that I have my twins the idea that I might not have had one of them is completely horrifying so in my core I'm desperately deeply grateful for the fact that the fertility industry in the US is woefully underregulated. <laughs> um, but the tiny bit of my brain that's still operating rationally understands that it's not really a good thing because mm. <laughs> it's, it's the wild west it really is. You know for, for 5 minutes there I was pregnant with quadruplets and that <sighs> even for me that would not have been a good result. <laughs> yeah. Well I I read the op-ed that you did in the New York Times there last week and the headline is is, is fantastic it's such a screamer headline. I don't know did you actually see it in print it said single at 38 have that baby Baby, um, which is like yeah, you know, for Bella magazine. I love it. It's fantastic. But um, you say in it that now women constantly come up to you saying wanting advice. Pe women are and actually it reminded me that in your book you also were hungry for advice when when you started on on the, on the, the the road to having these babies. You know, you did go to other single women who had children on their own. I did. And, and, you know, this was this was only four years ago. But even even that time lag, it feels like I only had a I only had a couple of role models who I could go and talk to in those four years. More and more women every year within my social group have had babies like this year alone. Three of my oldest friends have had kids on their own, on their own. Um, by a sperm donor. And and so it feels like the the numbers are rising every single year. Um but yes, wherever I go now, I, I, I'm approached by women who are at that critical age and are trying to figure out whether they can get the juice up to do it on their own or whether they should, as, as the woman in the article said to me, uh, whether they should just try and uh, have a baby with the next man that they, you know, go out on a date with, which now seems you, to me not ideal for the man either. No, now you're against that in the book. <laughs> you're against that as a way of a handy way of getting sperm. You, you know, but um, I don't know. Did you see the, the report this week? Um, it's from uh, it's an anthropologist from Yale University, a big study. Um, that was presented on Monday, on Monday at the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology Conference in Spain. And what it finds is that uh, they're talking about egg freezing. And yeah. I don't know if you remember when, you know, egg freezing became kind of a big thing about 10 years ago. There was all talk about, oh, all these high-powered women in offices climbing the ladder of their careers. They're going to be freezing their eggs, wait till they get to the top of their career, and then they're going to have a baby. So it was kind of framed in that, in that way. And this, this study, the results of this study, 
And most of the women were aged 35 to 39, where that, no, there weren't. It was nothing to do with career. They just hadn't found a man. And they were sort of waiting, 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 hoping that they would get into the right relationship, this baby. So that's what it was about. It was nothing to do with careers. I'm not surprised by that at all. And I think it's partly to do, but in a weird way, I don't think it's completely unrelated to women's working lives. And I think it's because women now... Uh, have the opportunity to be fulfilled in many more areas of their lives than historically they were ever able to be. So, you know, many of us have jobs that we love. We have apartments that we love. We live in cities or towns that we love and we have really good circles of friends. So we're not going to settle for someone that we're not interested in, um, which I think possibly in days gone by before the technology enabled us to have babies on our own or later was was the kind of default. Oh, well, you know, you, you settle down. Uh, with the third person that you have a long relationship with and off you go. And I just think that our lives are much more compelling these days. So a relationship in order to compete with the things we could be doing Mm. has to be really good. Um, And I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, The egg freezing thing is funny because... It, the problem with eggs freezing, I don't know if it, this it addressed it in the in the study, is that the time to freeze your eggs, like the time to take out a pension and start moisturising, is when you're 22, of when you think course. it's never, ever, ever going to be relevant to you. So it's, you know, if you if, if you start freezing your eggs at 38... <laughs> yeah, they're quite elderly eggs at that point. Yeah, quite elderly eggs, exactly. Mm. I thought there was one section in the book that I sort of made me a little sad, and this was... You were you were sort of imagining your life if you didn't have uh, a baby, if it didn't work. And I thought it was quite harsh, you know, because you're a journalist and you you it's quite exciting career by, you know, the, you start off and you're in Vancouver at this point and you're covering the annual TED conference and you're sort of imagining if this doesn't work and you're saying, well, you know, wh- what are you going to do? You know that um, and he says here, um, I will hold myself into account in ways that can only add to my shame. The calculation being, particularly for women, that if you don't have the baby you wanted, you jolly well better have something else to show for it. And nothing short of a Nobel Prize or the best, most passionate relationship will do. Oh, wasn't that a bit harsh? I, it was harsh, yeah. And I and I was, be, I was sort of self-lacerating because it seems to me for a minute that... Uh, that this wasn't going to happen. And I, I think psychologically it was easiest for me to try and embrace the worst case scenario by, you know, beating myself up so, so that I could get in first. It's funny, I hesitated a lot while writing those passages because I didn't want it to be read as an indictment of women who don't have children because mm. that's absurd. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's everybody's personal choice and we should all give each other a break on this subject. But to me, in that moment, in the pit of despair when my fertility treatment seemed to be failing... Um, I couldn't see around it. Mm. Uh, it just felt to me like this was going to be uh, insurmountably disastrous to my life. And the thing is, I tried to pull back from it in the epilogue of the book mm-hmm. because I think ultimately I would have resolved it and I would have moved on and I would have found, you know, absolute meaning and joy and everything else in my life uh, after a, you know, a, a period of grieving. But that was that was a pure expression of being in the pit of despair, which I think everyone who's trying to have a baby and is failing to have one is is unavoidable. Mm. And I I think also maybe in the context, as you say, of a society that nearly fetishized motherhood, you know, and babies and women. And I I, I don't know, did you you see the, the CNN headline that made my blood boil this week? It was Serena Williams won her first round at Wimbledon. And it was a fantastic match, her first match back. And uh, the headline in CNN was Williams, no, Serena, obviously not Williams, Serena um, wins first Wimbledon match as a mum. Ew. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, really. Um, anyway, so but now what happens next? So you've got your two girls. What age are your girls now? They're three and a half. Oh, okay. Now, of course, you see, all this is great. You've these gorgeous girls. That's fantastic. But at some point, they're going to look up at you with their lovely eyes and say, Mum, who's dad? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I know. So I don't quite have my story straight yet <laughs> because they haven't managed to formulate the question yet. So I feel like, I mean, I'm on borrowed time. But um, but it, like all the advice on this stuff seems to be that you talk about it from the very beginning. You know, you integrate the story of their origins with the, with the with all the other stories you tell them about, you know, having been pregnant and this is our life and this is my dad and this is, you know, and I'm, you know, everything that you teach them about where they come from um, is integrated from from the very very beginning so that it's not an elephant in the room and 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 in terms of like if they're curious about this guy i you know in 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 america you can pay extra so that he can be traced they can they can find him if they want when and did 18. you do that you you did that i did that felt important to me i thought you know they would have i thought they would have uh grounds for annoyance if i bought totally anonymous sperm and they were never ever able to find out anything about this person it may not turn out to be important to them but if it is i think as an insurance i need to be able to provide them with you know a contact Mm. um so there's that i mean the only thing i have to go on because it's relatively recent that women have been doing this in numbers the 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 few studies that have been done on the long-term uh outcome of, of children born of sperm donors to single mothers by choice is that there is nothing in the data that suggests they are any less happy or adjusted than the children of two-parent conventional families. So mm. my hope is that because having kids this way requires so much thought and commitment, uh, and, you know, you think very carefully about your social group and, who, and who, you know, male role models, and you make sure the children are loved, uh, coming in from all sorts of different directions, that, that it's, it's not a deficit. It's just a different way of doing it. Emma Brox, thank you very much for joining us from New York. And your book, An Excellent Choice, is published by Faber and Faber. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. And that's all we've time for today. Thanks to my guests, Joan Scales, Ro McDermott and Emma Brox. And remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcasts or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please go ahead along to iTunes and give us a review and tell your friends about it. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 